Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess to You this morning that so often the case is that we do not give time to Your Word. Father, can we even understand how the Creator of the universe would take time and, and use the lives of men down through the ages to convey Your thoughts to us through Your Holy Word, and yet we would not give it the supreme importance that it deserves in our life, Father. That is a confession I know we all can share in. And we, we come to You, Lord, today mindful of the opportunity we have as we open Your Word. And we thank You, Father, that You drew us here this morning that uh, it is so easy, Father, the enemy is so active every Sunday morning to look for ways that he might keep us from where we need to be. And yet, Father, in Your grace, You opened doors for us this morning, and here we are now. And we are thankful, Father, that the Word is open before us. Give our hearts to it, Father. Give our minds to it. Help us, Father, to put aside distractions this morning. Help us, Father, to, uh, to not see this as simply an event on our calendar on one day of the week but our purpose, Father, for living on earth. The reason we have this week. The reason You've set aside this day. So, Father, whatever else may be on our minds, whatever other plans we have, I pray, Father, that they would fade into the background of our mind and that before us we would find You as we sit at Your feet. And we would ask You, Father, that this Word be made living and active in our hearts, that it would do the work of the Holy Spirit to convict and in cases, Father, to show us sin but in other cases, Father, to build us up and edify us in the truth so that we may walk out from here the new creature You've made us to be. And we ask, Father, that that would be done by the power of Your Holy Spirit, not in the power of men, so that for the good work it does, we would give You the rightful glory. We thank You, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said we'd be in First Peter, and we will, but I want you to start with me in John, just briefly, in John chapter 21. As the Apostle John ends his remarkable Gospel in that chapter, he chose to focus on the tender moment between the risen Lord, now having come back from death and walking the earth for a short time, and the most prominent of his apostles, Simon Peter. In chapter 21, John records how the Lord appeared to Peter as Peter fished on the Sea of Galilee. Now, you remember weeks earlier at the crucifixion, Peter had been the most visible defector among all the apostles. They all had defected. They had all run. But it was Peter who we read denying Christ three times in that poignant moment in the Gospels. And he was saying those things, denying Christ publicly, despite the fact that he was the very first apostle among the twelve to confess Christ publicly. That rock. That confession on which Christ said He would build the church. And then now, at the end of John's Gospel, here's the humiliated Peter back on his fishing boat, retreating to the life he knew before Christ. And I wonder if he sat on that boat fishing, if, if his mind wasn't constantly revisiting the last three years and wondering, you know, was all of that worth it? What, what, what did I do? Did I throw away three years of my life? What, what was really behind all that we thought was going to happen from Jesus of Nazareth? And then we hear in John chapter 21 how Jesus appears to the men as they are fishing and calls them from the shore and they jump off the boat and come to Him. And then as they, restore, as they come together for a breakfast there on the seashore, Jesus restores Peter with this very simple little conversation in chapter 21, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. In that one powerful moment, Jesus picked up Peter from his despair and from his humiliation. And he pierced his heart with this question of, do you love me? Asking him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? And he asked specifically, do you love me more than these? Now, if you know from the text, he's referencing that haul of fish that Peter brought in from the boat. He says, do you love me more than this fish? Which is a way of saying, do you love me more than your work, than your way of life? Because after all, here's Peter, back at work. Peter responds to that question emphatically. He says, you know I love you. To which Jesus commanded Peter, then feed my sheep. And twice more he asks the question. Twice more he gets the response from Peter. And twice more he says, feed, shepherd, tend my sheep. Now we know in that moment that Jesus was erasing the stigma of Peter's three denials by giving him this opportunity for three statements of loyalty and faith back to Jesus. But it's also interesting how Jesus then turns the new acceptance of Peter, the new statements of loyalty, back on Peter now with a demand, with a requirement. He says, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. And of course, we know what Jesus meant by that. He says, you will act upon your love for me by showing that love to the Lord's flock and specifically feeding them with the Word of God. Because shepherding his flock was going to be the way by which Jesus expected Peter to demonstrate forevermore his obedience to that word he just confessed. That he was never to deny nor forsake the Lord again. And in his first letter to the church, as we will study it today and in the weeks to come, you're going to see proof positive of Peter's faithfulness to that mission. Because this is a letter, first and foremost, about shepherding the flock. And that's the letter we're going to begin with this morning. So with that introduction, let's turn to 1 Peter and... Let's begin a study of that letter. And I want you to remember the background a little as we get into it. Not just the background of the letter, which we'll talk here about in a moment, but the background of the author. A man who I think in many ways like Paul was forever tormented in his own memory of how he had let his Lord down. Because if you remember Paul, Paul was forever remembering back the moment of Stephen's stoning and other circumstances of the same kind where Paul was in agreement with those who persecuted Christians. Now to become one of them. And to forever be driven by that attempt, if it were possible, to erase his past through his service to the Lord, knowing it was forgiven on the cross. Peter, likewise, I think forevermore was devoted to shepherding the sheep with an awareness of how he himself let the Lord down and not wanting anyone to step in that same path. So with any epistle, we want to understand not just the author, as we've begun to understand a little now, but we want to understand the circumstances in the audience. And I'm not going to belabor that with this. I think you can spend too much time on background and never get into the meat. Peter, we know, was the chief apostle. That was true not just when Jesus walked the earth, being the most vocal, the most prominent of the twelve, but he carried that role into the early church. And I don't think that was by accident. I think it was always the case that our Lord expected that Peter would be that foremost of the apostles in the early church, the man on whom he could build the leadership of the church. He was appointed by Christ into that role, and he ministered in Jerusalem for many years after Jesus' resurrection. We know he's the one who preached at Pentecost. 
Probably the most defining moment in the early church. And here's Peter front and center in that role as leader. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, we hear Paul say that Peter was the beneficiary of a private appearance by Christ in his resurrected form. A one-on-one that Peter alone was given in, that, in those early uh, weeks after the resurrection. We know he was married. And according to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, he traveled with his wife when he went about in ministry. Again, another interesting fact out of the Scripture that could contend with some incorrect teaching and theology that we find in churches still today about the nature of marriage as it relates to ministry. Now, we don't know when he died, but there is well-founded church tradition that said he died around A.D. 64, being crucified upside down in Rome. And there's no reason to doubt that uh, church tradition at this point. Looking at the letter itself, this early leader in the church, this man who had such a humble experience in his own walk, and then as he writes his letters, and I would say this is true not only for First Peter, but if you were to study Second Peter, it's also true. These are not doctrinal letters, by and large. That's in stark contrast to Paul. If you've ever studied any of the Pauline letters, you know that Paul was very commonly uh, taken to bringing up major theological issues or doctrine within the church, and then from those moving into a discussion of life application. How do I take what I know to be true and put it into action in my life? Peter does a little of that, but he tends to favor more a practical approach to his ministry. So his letters raise doctrine, but almost secondary to the issue. His issue is always one of life actions, of living out. He makes it clear, in fact, right from the start of this letter, as we'll study here in a moment, that his purpose in writing here is not to cover some great principle of theology with his readers. He knows that these readers understand, for the most part, every major theological point he's going to raise in the letter. So what's the point in beating a dead horse? He doesn't bother. But he draws from that knowledge to a discussion of action. Now, we're going to look at both. We're going to take times at points along the way in the letter to just look at the doctrine, but I'm going to be bound by the letter. So where he raises an issue, I may touch on it, but if he does not make that a major point in the letter, nor will I. Because I think that's the only honest way to stay with the intent and the purpose of the author, is to follow the author, not follow my own thoughts. But it will mean that there'll be times along the way we're going to raise doctrinal issues that may trigger questions in your mind that I may or may not address in the course of the teaching. And of course, if that happens, good, because the whole point then is to encourage you to go back into the Word and study those things for yourself. We'll move forward with the letter. So what does he talk about? His principal purpose here is in practicing of doing what's right of doing what's right, of living out a holy life for Christ's sake, and the necessity to rely on Christ's grace in order to do that. Let me think back to what Peter did when he denied Christ three times. As Peter denied Christ three times, do you think he knew better than to do that? In fact, hadn't he been warned that that was going to happen? And yet he still fell. Taking that lesson into his own life and now approaching the teaching he's about to do in this letter, do you think he's not aware of the fact that just knowing what's right doesn't always get us to the right place? That it is a necessity, but it is not a sufficiency. That I can know what's right and still do the wrong thing. It is the role of a shepherd to lead the sheep to where they should go. In simple analogous terms, a sheep knows they need to eat, but yet a sheep is dumb enough that it won't find new pasture unless it's led there. Or it may wander off into danger while it's busy looking for pasture. It needs a shepherd to help it through that process. The grace of God, though, is the instrument through which Peter constantly refers us back for, per, for the ability to carry out the teaching God has given. He is basically preaching here on realizing, recognizing, and yielding to the sovereignty of God. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll start with the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, 
scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Christ Jesus and to be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Well, if you study letters, you know they all begin with a salutation. And here's the salutation Peter starts with. But what's interesting in you re- as you read his salutation is he doesn't waste a lot of time with it. He's teaching before he's done with verse 2. He starts with this simple identifying statement. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter being the chief of those, the rock, as we mentioned earlier. His name is in Aramaic, Cephas, which means rock. In Greek, Peter means stone. It's a man whose unshakable faith looks so shaky. The hour is before the crucifixion. And yet he was to be the first among the apostles, both in honor and in authority. We know, as we said earlier, he ministered to the Jews, principally in Jerusalem. So here's a contrast for you. Paul was the Gentile apostle. Peter, then, was the Jewish apostle. So he's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience, although I wouldn't limit his audience here, strictly speaking, to be Jew. In fact, this has led to a little bit of controversy in those who would study this letter and try to understand its audience. There's basically two camps. One camp believes that this letter was written exclusively to Jews living outside the land. In fact, if you find that view represented in some of the early verses I just read, he says to those who are residing as aliens, scattered throughout. Those words, the word scattered literally literally is diaspora, which is where we get the term for the region outside of Jerusalem where many Jews settled after they were scattered from Judea. So many believe this is a letter written almost exclusively to a Jewish mindset. And in that, there's some interesting qualities you'll find in the letter, which we'll explore as we get there. Another view, and what I tend to prefer, is that though certainly Jewish believers are in mind, it's not exclusively a Jewish Christian letter. That it was also intended for the Gentiles who might receive it. So it's not just from one point of view in my mind. Peter himself said he's writing to aliens in these cities, as I mentioned, regions of Asia Minor. Now, the first question I want to ask you this morning that you ought to consider with me in looking at how he starts this letter is why does Peter say he's writing to aliens? Now, to anyone in here who might be confused on the point, we're not talking about spaceships and you know, UFOs and outer space here. These are aliens in the sense of illegal aliens or legal aliens, immigration, in other words, people who are living outside their own home country. One would look at it and say, well, again, Steve, he's talking to the Jews, so he's calling them aliens because they're living in a foreign country. They're not living in Judea. Well, that's certainly potentially the case, but that's not all he means here. That's just the beginning of what he means here. Regardless of whether this audience was Jew or Greek, the term alien has a spiritual meaning that's clearly implied in the text. Clearly, this is what Peter is referring to. These believers were spiritual aliens. They were not residents of the city or of the town in which they lived. You know, some of these folks were told lived in Pontus. Some of these folks lived in Bithynia. Those are present-day northern Turkey, right on the Black Sea. Some were told lived in Galatia, which is sort of central Turkey today. Some of them lived in Cappadocia, which is eastern Turkey today. These are all parts of uh, a land they used to call Asia Minor in Peter's uh, in the day the letter was written. This letter, by the way, would have been an encyclical letter. That's a fancy term for a traveling letter. The letter would have gone to each of these towns in turn and been read there and then taken to the next city and read there. I don't care where these people lived. I don't care whether they lived in all of those regions or none of those regions. I don't care if they lived in those towns and remained there their whole life. I don't care if they went back to Jerusalem. I don't care if they moved to Rome. I don't care if they moved to Austin. They would always be aliens. Wherever this letter would go to whomever would hear it in the church, the term alien is the appropriate term. You, ladies and gentlemen, this morning, you're aliens. 
You are aliens, spiritually speaking, because that's how the Scriptures describe us. A believer's allegiance is no longer to this world, nor to anything or any place that could be found in this world. Upon the time we become a believer, we become an alien to this world. Remember Jesus' own words to the disciples in John chapter 15. He said in John 15:19, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. In that statement, Jesus makes clear that the moment we believe in the Gospel, we become a child of God and therefore an enemy of the world. We are granted a new citizenship. Now, these are not metaphors. I don't want you to start to think that somehow this is language that the the Scripture writers are using to picture something. They are literal. From God's perspective, we are no longer citizens of this world. Once we uh, were born, we were belonging to this world, we were under the power of the prince of this world, we had all of that going for us. Paul calls us sons of disobedience, remember? But the moment you believe, you, you literally immigrate into heaven. You immigrate into heaven. Now, we are citizens, we're told, of a holy city in heaven, which we will one day inhabit eternally, but we're still waiting for the reality of that place. So this is the analogy that would make sense to you. If you were to be born overseas, you know, we talked about the missionary family, for example. If that family has a new child while living in Indonesia, both those parents are American citizens, I'm assuming. I don't know them, but I'm going to make that assumption. And therefore, their child, when born, will be an American citizen, will it not? But where is it living? Indonesia? Never having ever set foot in the United States, nonetheless, that child would be a a citizen of the United States. When you were born again, you were born by a new father, Christ, rather than of Adam. You became a citizen with him of his country in the moment you were born again. Though you have yet to set foot in that country, into that holy city, that city in Jerusalem that is in the new heaven waiting, or in heaven waiting to come to the new earth, nevertheless, You are a full legal citizen of that country even now. Hebrews says it this way in chapter 11, verse 13, speaking about what the saints of old used to think about their future, knowing that they were citizens of a future heaven. Look what they said, or what the writer says in Hebrews. All of these, meaning all of these saints, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed, if they had been thinking of a country from which they had come out of, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Think of Abraham. Abraham was the rich, if not the richest, one of the richest men on earth in the days he lived. The guy could have bought anything. Do you realize he never bought any land? God sent him to Judea, sent him to the new promised land, and said, this is your land, I'm giving it to you. But he never bought any of it. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, if that guy, Abraham, had thought that when God said, I'm promising you a better land, that He meant the physical earth He was walking around in on that moment, He would have started buying the land up. God made Him rich enough to do it. But the guy was a wanderer his whole life. He was a vagrant from a world's perspective. He never, the only thing he ever bought was a grave for his wife. Why? That should beg a huge question in your mind. Why does someone with that much wealth not buy land that he thinks God has told him is his? Because, as the writer of Hebrews said, they knew that the real promise was for a different land. 
Same physical spot on an earth, but a different earth. Same promise, but not in the world, in a heavenly world. Because you know what? Anything you buy in this world burns up when the world goes with it. Where is your hope? What is it you think you've been brought into as a child of God? It's not into a here and now, it's into a future. And you live here and now, waiting for the future, knowing it is coming. And to the one who understands that, they put no investment in this world, because what a waste of time. And what Peter is saying to this church very early in this one word, by calling them aliens, is bringing to mind this concept that they were not saved for an eternity on this earth per se, but they were saved into an eternity, into a new citizenship that is yet to show itself to them, but is no less real, no less coming. The fundamental question that Peter is going to raise in this letter over and over again, this is just the beginning, and it's an issue that the readers had to wrestle with, and I guarantee you it's, a, it's an issue we're going to wrestle with in this letter, is simply this. Are we living as tourists and sojourners in this world, or are we busy putting down roots? Because the flip side to being a citizen in heaven is that you're an alien now. You know, if you are born as an American citizen living in Indonesia, you're, you're never confused about where home is, even though you've never been there. I mean, you may feel an attachment to the culture. You may feel some, some sense of that's normal because that's what you've grown up with, but you're never confused about where your citizenship really lies. Similarly, if you're settling into this world, you're forgetting where your citizenship really lies. And you're forgetting where your true hope resides. Because if you bought into this world and then all the world tells us matters, then you're only deceiving yourself. You're not changing where you're a citizen of, but you're only wasting time in that investment. Peter's going to bring this issue up time and time again in this letter, so I'm not going to belabor it any more now than I need to. But I want you to understand that's a major theme of the letter that's going to come up over and over and over again. There's a second major theme of the letter that's also going to come up several times. And Peter also introduces this second theme in those same first two verses. He said his readers are those who are not only aliens, but also chosen by God. Chosen by God. The believer is God's elect. Peter did not introduce this comment in passing as sort of a throwaway line. No, he's meaning this with all its intent. He's saying, you were aliens and you were also God's elect. We are brought into life as a believer, into our new life as a believer, by God's power. And at the moment that happens, we become an alien to this world, and a citizen of the next. And that was done by God. Verse 2 says, it was according to the foreknowledge of God. Our election into the family of God has its beginning in the eternal purpose of God's will. Our inevitable adoption as sons and daughters of God was a decision formed in the will of God and executed before even the foundations of the world were laid, according to Ephesians chapter 1. You were His before you were born, by His will, appointed for a day of belief. And more than that, Scripture says we were His before Adam was born, appointed for that same day. God's foreknowledge is not a way of saying God knew what beforehand was going to happen. It's a way of saying that God's knowledge of what would happen was indicative of His will that it would happen. Acts 2.22 puts it this way when you look at the statements of Stephen talking about the history of Israel. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves now know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. In the way Stephen describes it, he says, 
it was always God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge that this would happen the way it did, and yet it happened through the hands of godless men. Paul puts it very simply in his first chapter of uh, Ephesians, Ephesians 1.5. He says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. God's foreknowledge is always connected to God's sovereign power to bring about that very thing he knows according to his will. To suggest, as some have been prone to do, that, that all God does is simply know in advance who is going to be believing, and that's why he calls us the elect, it not only denies the, the, the truth of the Bible, it also denies common sense. Do you call someone president-elect merely because they decide they want to be president? Does the term mean someone's own decision? Does any grade schooler use the word elect that way? I mean, if that were true, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, everyone who's running for president right now would be called president-elect, because I guarantee you they all want it. If that's what the term meant, then that's how we would use it. But we don't use the term that way, right? The word elect means to make a decision to select someone for a position. That's how we use the word in common day language. That's how the Bible uses the word. When God elects, it is the case that God is choosing men and women to receive his grace. When we elect a president, it's because a group of voters decide to make that person the president. That's what the word means. In fact, I want you to notice in verse 3, Peter says, God the Father has caused us to be born again in a living hope. And even before that, in verses 1 and 2, Paul, uh, Peter actually describes the means by which God did that. He says in verse 2, our salvation came about, one, because of the foreknowledge of the Father, two, because of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, three, made possible by the cleansing blood of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. God the Father chose us. God the Spirit changed our hearts so that we would receive the truth. And God the Son cleansed us of our sin by His blood. So that all three persons in the Trinity were involved in the work of redemption, working a plan that God Himself foreknew, anticipated, and intended before we ever took our first breath. So that at the point where we say we believe, who could receive the glory but God? Even in those who would somehow try to say, yes, I know it's by grace, but I chose God, have denied him some element of the glory he rightly receives. No, you didn't choose him. The Bible says no one chooses God. No, not one. But in God's grace and mercy, he can change a heart so that it would believe and choose him. And no one comes to the Father, but that the Spirit first draw him, we're told in John's Gospel. That is a truth, by the way, that his readers never needed a preaching like that on. Do you realize that? The modern church needs that. The church in the day that Peter wrote that would not only have received it with a head nod, it would have thought nothing of it. Because the nation of Israel fully appreciated that they had been chosen. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. If you were a Jew, the last thing you needed any teaching on was the principle that God chooses men to be his children. It was a foregone conclusion, which is why, I would argue, Peter gives no attention to it in terms of doctrinal background. He simply mentions it as a statement of fact, because that's how his readers would have received it. So if Peter is not intending here to launch into a discourse on the doctrine of election, what is his purpose in mentioning it? Why did he mention it in his letter? Well, the word I would use is perspective. He wants to develop a little perspective in these believers. In fact, Peter's already at work building on a principle here on perspective that's going to come up time and time again. It combines with this idea of alien. Look at the, how the two work together. 
You and I, if we were to become an alien right now, it's only going to be by our choice, is it not? I can't make you an alien in terms of your citizenship to the United States. The only way you're going to be an alien is if you get your passport, get on a plane, and go somewhere. And then when you get there, you'll be able to say, yep, I'm an alien, and I know exactly how I got here. And then when you have bad food and rude waiters and a hotel that isn't very comfortable, you're not blaming anyone but yourself, are you? You chose to go there. You made the accommodations. It's all you. But now what Peter's telling these readers is, you're an alien. You're in a world that's not, of your, uh, that's not your own anymore. And because, as uh, Jesus himself said, because you're not of this world, they're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. And you're going to sit there and you're going to ask yourself, how did I get here? You know, why am I an alien in this world? I didn't choose to be an alien in this world, did I? I don't remember signing up for that. And in, and in fact, if I repudiate some of this Christian stuff and go back to my Jewish way of life, I'm not going to have as many of these trials and troubles. You know, what's interesting is a Jew was already a persecuted person in the world that they lived in Peter's day. But if you were a Jewish Christian, now the Jews persecuted you too. So not only did the whole world hate you, your brethren hated you. You lost out on the opportunity to be part of that family. You, you would no longer be accepted at the temple. You would no longer be allowed to participate in many of the festivals that had defined your life. Imagine being locked out of Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, and the 4th of July. What else do you do? How, where does your new way of life come from? And how did I get here, by the way? By God's choice. So now, in light of circumstances you don't like, your attitude is going to be different if you understand that it's by God's choice that you're in that circumstance. Because in our way of thinking, and I don't think it was all that different in Peter's day, problems cry out for solutions. And persecution is a problem. And lack of acceptance in my culture is a problem. And so if I have a problem, I want to fix my problem. Unless, of course, your problem isn't so much of a problem from God's perspective, unless that problem was God's ordained set of circumstances for you as His chosen. Now your attitude may be a lot different, won't it? It should be. Because when the times get tough, faith can falter. Who knows that better than good old Peter? And if Peter had understood why Jesus was being persecuted, if he could have possibly understood in the moment why it was that he had to go to the cross, do you think he would have denied him? Why do you deny Christ in the midst of what was going on in the time Peter saw Jesus being persecuted? Well, why would he need to deny Christ? Well, of course, so that he didn't end up on a cross too, right? The whole point was so that he didn't get in trouble with Jesus. But on the other hand, if he understood that, Peter, I'm not sending all the disciples to the cross right now. I'm just sending my son. And if you understood why, and if you understood it was by God's sovereign will, as Acts said, predetermined, predestined and foreknown by God, that it would occur in a certain way, on a certain day. If he could have understood that, would he have needed to deny Christ? Knowing that now as the shepherd of the flock, can he not be a source of knowledge and insight to the church who might similarly find itself at times under persecution in circumstances we don't like because of our faith? And then as faith falters, you know, wives and husbands in bad marriages, they seek escape. Slaves under a bad master, they seek to rebel. Employees under a bad employer seek to rebel. Those under persecution seek relief. The problem with that is the ways we tend to go in seeking relief tend to run counter to our witness. I think there's almost a rule there. I don't know if it's biblical or not, but it seems to be in my experience. The more persecution comes for your faith, the greater you'll have to depart from your witness in order to escape that persecution. You know, in Peter's day, it was very simple. 
deny Christ as Lord, declare Caesar as Lord, all this goes away. It's just that simple. But it's also just that complicated and just that damaging to your witness. Peter remembers that lesson and he's teaching it here. So I want you to look at where he goes next. After that short introduction, look at where he goes in the next series of verses. The first lesson he has on perspective for this crowd and for this, these readers and for you and I today is a three-part description on the character of our salvation. So he's going to describe the character of your salvation and he's going to do it in three stages. He's going to talk about the reward. He's going to talk about the experience, the present day reality of it. And then finally, he's going to talk about the privilege of it. The reward, the experience, the privilege. They also map to to chronology. One is future, one is present, one is past. We're going to look at those in sequence. We won't get through all of them today, obviously. We'll get through the first one. And we may touch a little on the second, but that's our goal for the day. Let's go to verses one, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where we hear the reward described. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's only natural to remind the readers here at this point in the letter, I think, of the reward. I think that's maybe the first thing you would mention, isn't it? For those who might falter or have some concern over how they got to where they are, why it is that God is putting them through all these things, well, let me explain to you what's at stake here. Peter starts in verse 3 again by reminding the believers that their salvation was first and foremost a hope in resurrection. I'm often amazed at how few Christians can actually state what belief means when they say to someone, you have to believe in Christ to be saved. Explain that to me. What is it I have to believe? Do I have to believe that Christ existed? Well, that's hardly a very challenging belief. Even historians would agree that Christ existed. Where is their salvation in that? Now, what you have to believe, of course, is that He was the Messiah, that He died on the cross for our sin. But now, how would I know that to be true? You state it. But where is there any evidence of that? How would I know that that's true? Well, Romans 10 gives us the answer. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what you have to believe about Jesus Christ. That His death and resurrection were done by the power of God for the sake of sinners. Believing that He raised Him from the dead. Now, in that belief, you have reason for hope, Peter says. Knowing that the same power of God that raised Jesus from death will be made available to those through faith who would trust in Jesus for the same outcome. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13 puts it this way. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with Him. There is a living hope in that belief. You know, when you use the word hope, when I use the word hope, in this world today, it's not the biblical definition of the word. You may not realize that. If I say to you, for example, I hope I go to lunch after this and get a good meal, or I hope that you know, my car doesn't break down on the way home, or I hope the Cowboys win today, You would use those words, right? And that's the way we typically use the word. That is not the biblical definition of the word hope. Because in the way I just used it, I should really be using a different word. I should use the word wish. I wish those things would happen. Which immediately implies that I really don't know. 
number one. It's completely outside my knowledge of what will happen. Number two, there's at least a possibility I'll be wrong. There's some possibility I'll be wrong, which is why I say wish, which is why it's an uncertainty, which is why I'm sitting here worrying about it, right? Hope isn't that in the Bible. The way the Bible describes the word hope, the way it uses it, and the actual word behind it in the Greek, is a certainty. There is joy in hope because it is a complete certainty that it will happen. The better way to use the word hope in our culture, if we wanted to use it in a biblical way, would be to say this. You know that you will be resurrected upon the death of your physical body, and you know this, or to use the biblical term, you hope this, because the God who saved Jesus in that way has promised to do the same to you. And the proof of the promise was the reality of its occurrence in Jesus' life. If someone says, I have a solution to you for death, I can help you cheat death, and then they die, and you don't see them again, how much faith do you put in their supposed cure for death? It's like the investment broker who says, I have a way to make you a million dollars, and the guy's still driving a 1986 Toyota. Well, if you know so much about money, why are you still driving a 1986? You know, you ever thought that way? Similarly, the man who knows so much about how to save you from death, he himself had better be able to overcome death as proof positive of his power before you put any trust in his word. And when Jesus walked the earth after his own death, he provided the proof that the Gospels document that his answer for how to cheat death is truly the answer. And that answer? Rely on his death in your place. And then when this physical body gives up, as it will one day, barring the rapture, then that body will be replaced with a new one and you will live on in a new way. That is the hope you and I have. Now, if you are like Abraham, you truly have that hope. If you really believe that you will be alive after this body is gone and that life will continue on eternally, then how much stock do you put in this body? I often use the car analogy here as well. If I told you without any doubt in your mind that you were going to receive a brand new car next year, but for one year you're going to have to drive the cruddy old car you still have, how much money and time would you put into that car? You'd just want it to keep it going just a little, wouldn't you? You'd go into the mechanic and say, what's the least I have to do to keep this thing running? Because I've got a new one next year and I'm sure of it. All right, you've got a new body coming. Brand new, incorruptible body. An eternal one. It will live forever with God in a new place which is much better than this one. What are you doing in your life based on that hope? And could I, could I see in your life proof that you have that hope? Or do I see in your life decisions that draw a question in my mind about whether you even realize that's true or not? That's Peter's concern here when he says, your salvation is this hope you have in resurrection, a hope you know to be true. Now, if that's not enough, Peter then reminds the reader that this transformation is followed by an inheritance. An inheritance. In verse 4, he says, we're reminded that our salvation brings with it an undefiled, imperishable inheritance reserved in heaven, and it cannot fade. It cannot be withdrawn. It cannot be lost. I want you to consider how you come into an inheritance today. I don't know how many of you have had that blessing of having a family member leave you something in a will. But it always starts with a will, does it not? I mean, I know people can give their, their wealth up early. That's what the prodigal son's all about. But even that was done on the premise that when you die, Dad, I'd get it anyway, right? There's a will implied by any of that. So people write a will, and sometimes we call it a last will and testament. Testament. And in that last will and testament, the death of the one who wrote it 
results in whatever was in that will being executed, being carried out. For the beneficiary, for the benefit of who? The heirs. The heirs of the last will and testament are the beneficiaries for whatever the, the testamentor put into their will. That's how it works. No different in Scripture. Jesus Christ had a last will and testament. We call it the New Testament. And that New Testament provided for the heirs to receive an inheritance upon the death of the one who inaugurated that last will and testament, who was Christ. And as heirs, we are to be recipients of that inheritance. Hebrews 9, if you want a biblical description of all that I just said, Hebrews 9 is the description of how the death of the one who wrote the testament of the covenant, in the case of biblical terminology, that becomes the mechanism by which the inheritance is then provided. Well, our testamentor, Christ, has died. He died the death required by that will and testament, which then brought into being our inheritance. Now, you're asking yourself, well, if I understand what you're saying, Steve, I've already received my inheritance then, right? I, I, I'm kind of concerned about that because I've seen the house I live in and I'm not real happy with that. Is that really the good thing that I have coming to me? Is that what you mean by inheritance? Because it is true. You have it right now. It was given to his heirs, even to those who may yet be born. But it's in heaven reserved for them right now. Well, let me tell you why you don't have it right now. Because God is smarter than us. If he were to give you that inheritance right now, how would it have to come? If he were to satisfy that desire we might have in this moment to receive our inheritance now, how would it have to come? It would have to come in the form of this physical world. How else could it come to us but in a physical form? Because that's the form we occupy ourselves. So let's say there is some physical manifestation of that inheritance made available to you now. What's going to happen? It's going to fall under the curse of this physical world, just as everything else does. And it's going to begin to rot away. And moths are going to eat it. And thieves are going to take it. And eventually it's going to burn up. Do you want your inheritance that way? I don't. God in His wisdom said, I have a better plan for your inheritance. I'm going to hold on to it up here just for a while. I mean, we're only talking a few decades and you'll be right there with it. And when you are, neither you nor it will be, imperishable, will be perishable. Neither you nor it will ever leave my presence. It is an eternal inheritance. I mean, that's something else to consider here. If I were to give you an inheritance now, even if you were the most frugal person in the world, could it last forever? Eventually it's gone. Not this one. Not this one that's waiting for you. Now, I know sometimes as we think about that inheritance, it might draw in our hearts this thought of, that seems, that seems like the wrong thing to think about, Steve. I mean, I don't know that I should really be spending my time thinking about some inheritance God has reserved for me. It doesn't seem very spiritual. Take that up with the Bible. Do you realize that's Paul's most common refrain to the Christian who he wishes to provide a sense of hope and anticipation to? It's in our resurrection and our eternal inheritance. And his most common refrain to try to trigger in us an obedient life is a thought of what is at stake in our inheritance. Because when you think about it, what else is there? Can you sin your way out of your salvation? Praise God, no. You didn't earn it. So you can't unearn it. So if that's the case, then what is the motivation God has held out to His heirs, to His children, for obedience? Good gifts. And our Father in Heaven, being so much better than us, knows how to give His children good gifts. But those good gifts come in the form of present-day blessing and grace, yes. But they are ultimately uh, described in Scripture as an internal inheritance reserved for us and reserved to each of us according to His pleasure based on our obedience. 
And that's why Peter says, I am not going to let him down. I'm going to run this race to the end and receive that crown that he has waiting for me. So yes, don't, you know, we don't want to twist that in our minds and somehow use it in a false way, but I defy how you would do that. I, I challenge you to figure out a way to live the wrong life based on a desire to receive God's eternal inheritance. I haven't figured out how you can even do that. I'm more worried about the Christian who doesn't have that on the foremost of their mind, who is not motivated by the future, the eternity, rather than on what's in this world today. I think more commonly we tend to get our minds focused on what the next paycheck will bring, as opposed to focused on what God has prepared to give us in eternity. If it is the case that we have this hope in resurrection that is sure, and we have this inheritance upon our resurrection that we can look forward to, if it weren't good enough that you have those two things, he says, the, the fact that those two things will happen is not in our power, but as he put it, in God's power. Because if you're worried, as some might be, that I could shrink back, I could lose my step, I could be the one who falters in the end, who has that challenge in my life that, that causes my faith to become bankrupt or shipwrecked, as Paul calls it. And next thing you know, I'm going to end up right back where I left off and all of that inheritance is at risk. If that's even a consideration in your mind, Peter says very clearly in verse 5, we are those who are protected by the power of God so that it is the case that God doesn't just save us in His power and then, if it were possible, turn us loose into the world and hope for the best, but rather we are protected in that inheritance by His power. That does not deny the reality of our own obedience. It does not reduce the requirement that we have to devote our efforts in excellence to following Him. But it does guarantee that your resurrection and your inheritance is not at risk. So much as to say that what opportunities you have here will define those things, yes. But they are not at risk in the ultimate sense. You cannot do as Peter did, deny Christ three times and then expect Christ to turn His back on you. Peter is the best living example out of the Bible that I can give you for how that cannot be true. That Christ and God Himself is faithful even when we are faithless. And then he moves into the second point just briefly. Verses 6-9. through nine. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So as I said, I can't cover this in detail, and your patience wouldn't, provide, wouldn't allow it anyway. But I want you to look just briefly at where he begins here. Look at the wonderful contrast he draws. He's been talking about the reward. Now he's talking about the present reality. Now remember, we're talking here about the eternal realm versus the world we live in as aliens. And in the eternal, it was all about permanence and dependence. I know it's true, and it's going to happen, and it's permanent, and it's imperishable, and it's there, it's there by the power of God. The rock is there in all of those respects. And now he turns to the present, and what does he say? Things like, a little while, if necessary. This is sense here now as he turns in this contrast that the things of this world are passing. They are temporal. They are temporary. They're not where we put our faith and our trust. They're just nothing. He's already drawing that contrast so that we don't overemphasize the present, while yet we still understand the present. And then, in verse 6, he says, you have trials, but only for a little while. The Greek word here literally means briefly. 
This enters us into the rest of the chapter for the most part and the book as well because the book is heavily focused on trials, on the challenges that come in faith. And look, just because you and I don't have someone beating down our door trying to drag us off to prison because of our faith, though we may know people who have that very experience for that matter, just because that's not our present day reality, you are the one the enemy is looking for if you think that that means you're not vulnerable. Because you know what the enemy does? Very crafty. Very sly. He comes at you where you're not expecting him. So in our case today, while we're all ready for the person who would knock on our door and tell us we can't pray in school or we can't do this, we can't do that, we're up in arms over that. But what about the person who sells us 4,500 channels in HD of gosh knows what kind of nonsense that captures not only our mind and our hearts, but our time? Leaves us unavailable to do a lot of other things God would want us to do. Or the company that comes with stock options that would fundamentally change your lifestyle and next thing you know you race after that and you're spending 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week at work and there's no time left for the Bible. You see, the enemy isn't going to come at you the way you expect, but he's going to come at you. And when it comes, what you're going to have to be prepared to say is, you know, forsaking that good job, forsaking all that entertainment, forsaking the friends who think that it's fun to go to bars at 3 a.m. every, every night, whatever it is that's in your life that's drawing you out of where God would have you be, that's your trial. That's your sacrifice, whatever form it may take. And if you're focused on the here and now and not the eternal, it's going to be a challenge. In fact, I would argue you'll probably fail at times along the way. If you're focused on the eternal, what hope could any of that have to draw your attention away? James says it this way in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow you will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. When, when Peter says you may have trials now for a little while, briefly, is he saying that you're only going to have little moments in your life that are trial? That's not the term. That's not what the word means. He's saying your life is brief. Do you realize you could be born with a trial? You could be born in some kind of handicapped state. And we pray for that family that's going to be going through a very similar situation. And that could last the lifetime of that individual. Do you realize by biblical definition, that is a brief trial? Because in the span of eternity, no one's life is anything other than a vapor and brief. And if it is in case that it is brief, it can never be the excuse we might want it to be to explain away our lack of obedience to God's calling in our life. He's bringing things to mind in a soft way. But he wants them to understand that the message that this letter is going to convey is one of obedience and suffering, but with a mindset that says eternity is my focus, not the here and now. And in that, I can at least appreciate God's grace and sovereignty, if not completely understand it. And I can certainly be willing to endure whatever he brings my way for the sake of his glory and my testimony in the meantime, knowing that he is protecting me for an eternal opportunity in his presence with an inheritance awaiting. That was his message as he began the letter. That's where we'll pick up next week. Let's go to prayer as we leave today and ask the Lord that even in the week we have to come, that there would be some opportunity maybe for us to bring to mind this lesson and live out, even in just a small way, an opportunity to explain to the world where our hope lies. And by the choices we make, perhaps demonstrate that so that they might ask for a reason for the hope that lies within us. Let's go to prayer. Dear Father, what a glory it is, Father, that we can be a part of the family of God by your power. Father, give us the humility to appreciate that it was in your will and in your timing that we became 
who we are in, in Christ by faith. And Father, I pray that that would keep us humble, but Father, never lead us to inaction. But Father, it would instead cause us to draw out of ourselves and know that there are yet others who You may be calling and we may be the instrument by which You would draw them into the faith. Give us an opportunity, Father, to be used in that way. As well, Father, in our own walk, as we suffer in trial and we have difficulties along our path, I pray, Father, that You would continue to give us eyes for eternity so that we'd appreciate, Father, that though these things come upon us, they are, by definition, brief. And yet, Father, what is at stake in our response is eternal. And in that, Father, give us strength, for we rely on Your grace and not our own strength in those moments. Father, for this fellowship, I pray a continued prayer that You would lift them up and guide them in their time as they search for a pastor. Father, that they would be held together by the Holy Spirit and be ministered by the elders as You gift each of them. And that they as well, Father, could go out from this place and be a light in this city. Thank You, Lord, for the teaching as well through the Holy Spirit. May it be used to glorify You in our lives. And to be Your will, Father, may we come back next week to study again. In Jesus' name. Amen.